We're talking about the afterlife, and what I find really interesting is that it's important that we think through words. We talked about the word hell, and what is that concept, what does that mean in the Bible, and what I find is that words are really important because Jesus spent a great deal of his time teaching to correct our distorted vision of things, and in, in words that we would kind of say, and he would unpack it to tell us what they really meant and what was the reality behind that. And, and the danger so often in faith and in life is, isn't the stuff we don't know, it's really the stuff we think we know but we get wrong. And, and so you, you get this picture that Jesus is constantly teaching us this way, and heaven is one of those words that I, I think um, it has lost its compelling force because we truly don't understand what it is that, that Jesus and the Bible is talking about when we talk about heaven. Uh, and we get these different kind of ideas all throughout our culture. And one of them, and, and I'm kind of like some of the far side Gary Larson. Anybody remember him? I was always bummed when he didn't. You know, it's kind of like, wish I would brought a magazine. Like, you're going to be bored in heaven. How often do you hear that? Or, or I like this one because it's all it's this music idea. Um, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Um, <clears throat> okay, those who love accordion, I'm sorry. But anyway, you get these pictures of we're going to just play the harp all the time and we're going to, you know, it's just not what I would call compelling. So how many of you would like to go to heaven when you die? Raise your hand if you'd like to go to heaven when you die. Okay, great. Okay, I'm going to ask you another question. How many of you would like to go to heaven right now? Raise your hand. Well, some of you. Let me, let me rephrase this question and let me ask you it this way. How many of you would like to wake up tomorrow morning and have the world set right? Okay. See, it just shows we don't understand heaven. No more hungry children, no more terrorists, no more school shootings, no more broken families, no more hostile work environment, no abusive uh, relationships, no more migraines or chronic back problems or stomach cramps, no more cancer, MS, immune deficiency disorders, no more drought, no more racism, no more division, manipulation, hidden agendas, lustful thoughts, fear of financial hardship, no more political advertisements (laughs) or fake news. No more sin, shame, guilt, or death. But not only that, you'd be living, loving, creating, developing, building, engineering, computing, caring, tending, all with such passion that time seems irrelevant. You are in this eternal state of flow, living out your life to the fullest, just as you were intended and created to be. You would have life. And it would be abundant. You'd always speak the truth in love. You'd always look at others purely and listen to others with full attention and understanding and actually gaze in the eyes and see the other person's soul. You'd know their hearts and dreams and hopes and passions and be excited for them. You'd be fully seen and fully known. You'd be understood and loved for who you are. And you would give those same gifts to everyone you met. You'd always feel safe and secure, yet alive and full with energy, challenged and engaged throughout the day. You'd be a great friend. You'd do excellent work. Your body would work as it was meant, able to shoot three-pointers from anywhere. 
on any of these March Madness teams. Your mind would be sharp, alert, and active. Every morning you'd wake up with joy, and this joy would grow throughout the day. And the next day you would wake up with even more joy. And this would continue endlessly, day after day, month after month, year after year, millennium upon millennium into eternity, and it would never end. Your greatest joy, peace, or sense of fulfillment would be an infinitesimal fraction of the kind of joy and fulfillment and pleasure you would experience in heaven. So how many people would want that? That's the biblical view of the afterlife. It's the vision of heaven according to Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, you will find that Jesus spent a good deal of time correcting our distorted pictures of life and even the afterlife. He said it's like a party. It would be like a great feast. It would be like the celebration of a wedded love and actually with some dancing. For you Baptists. Anyway. It'd be a place where if you were faithful... Here in this life, you would be given much more to be faithful and responsible for, but not the kind of things that you'd be afraid of. In fact, the kind of things that just so challenge you that, again, you would lose a sense of any aspect of time at all. The danger isn't the stuff we know or don't know. It's the stuff we think we know and get wrong. And it leads to a very toast, uncompelling vision of what heaven is. And I want to talk about that. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read together. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 21. So if you want to find it, if you have a Bible, it's a really simple one. It's right at the back. Okay? We're going to look at two places in a moment. Right in the back and right at the beginning. So it'll make that kind of easy. I'm going to read the first four verses and ask you to invite you to read the fifth one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now read this with me. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Father, we pray, give us a better vision of heaven that would compel us to bring more of your presence into our life each and every moment of our days till we come to that new day with you we pray in Christ's name amen you may be seated so here's the very first truth that I want to share about heaven that I don't think we get right and that is that heaven is this place where all that is is made new that's what you find here in this passage of scripture all that is is made new If you look at verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's a very important thing because after it, it says, The first heaven and the first earth passed away. We don't have a very good understanding of this idea of heaven. We think of heaven as the by and by somewhere out there. 
The, the, the Bible actually has a number of definitions for heaven if you put it in context. At times it will talk about heaven as being not just the ground, but the sky above us. And so it's that place up there, out there, where the stars and everything exist. And then at times it will talk about heaven in a kind of an interesting way. It talks more about a dimension that, that around us is a spiritual realm that we don't see with our physical eyes. But from time to time, some people actually see the curtain pulled back and they see into that realm. And the Old Testament would talk about those people as seers. There was a time when Elisha was um, being chased by a nation of, of, of people because of um, um, Aram was coming after him, this nation. And here they were all in the valley, and he's standing over this mountain looking at them as they're coming to get him. And his servant Gehazi is just nervous and afraid. And, and Elisha says, oh, Father, would you open his eyes that he might see? And a little bit later... His eyes are opened, and we're told in, in, in 2 Kings 6 that he saw on the hills what he hadn't seen before in the heavens, in the spiritual realm, a, a whole host of chariots of fire and the angel armies of God. And he was encouraged. We, we don't often see and we get discouraged because we don't know that there's this realm that we don't even understand, that there are angels and, and they are, and they are with us. And I'm so glad they're with me when I drive. <laughs> My wife even more so. There's a realm they talk about. So it's the skies, it's this realm that you pull back and you're in the spirit realm. But there's one other thing and this is the definition of heaven and this is the definition of heaven that we talk about so often when it says there's a new heaven and a new earth. It is this idea, it is the place in the realm of God's unhindered will. Nothing, unstoppable God, nothing can stop it. It's what Jesus prayed when he said to us, he said, I want you to pray this way. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, what? On earth, as it's in heaven. Well, what's it like in heaven? Whenever God would say something to an angel, he said, I want you to do this, they would do it. They would do his bidding without thought, without question. They would follow his will. And up in that place, everything is good and right and well, or whatever that, it's not necessarily up there. It's this other dimension that we don't experience yet because we don't live in a world where we experience the unhindered will of God. I know my will, I oppose him. And I know some of yours as well. And that will, in opposition to God, can create a mess. So if we're going to understand correctly what this whole idea of heaven is and not live with a distorted, what I call, uncompelling view, it is not about this place out there in the skies, in the by and by, way out there someday that we'll go to. In fact, that's more of a Greek platonic kind of view of this idea that we're these immortal souls and, and someday we get rid of all the material stuff and, and we go to some place out there. That's not what the Bible talks about. It talks about in Revelation 21 that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. This heaven and earth will pass away. So if you want to talk about what heaven is, you have to understand this. That what is here, that we've experienced without any sin, will be made new in its pristine glory. Not just this earth, but all the heavens and the universe. 
If you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible speaks about this earth and this heaven. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he looked at it and he said, wow, it's really good. And then he created us in his image to tend it. He said, wow, this is not just good. This is really, really good. And then something happened. And sin entered it in. And what was glorious and good through our opposition and through sin began to mar and destroy this. So you come to verse 1 of 21.1. What is the heaven that we look forward to someday? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Just as God will give us new imperishable bodies, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, you could still recognize who he was. The idea is that he gives us a resurrected body. It's new, it's different, it's a new kind. It's a glorious body. That's what Jesus has in heaven today. It's it's just mind-boggling. And that's what he will give every person who follows him in this new and wondrous earth and universe that we live in. So if you like Naples or Scottsdale in the winter, you can enjoy it someday. If you like taking a ski trip to Colorado or Switzerland or golfing at Pebble Beach or Augusta, or you like the mountains in Montana, or you would like to take a cruise on the Amazon or a trip to Mars or whatever. That is heaven. It is a new, remade, wondrous place that he originally created for us that we will enjoy someday. And what makes it hard to talk about heaven, it's kind of like I said last week about hell. One of the difficulties that John has in Revelation is how do you talk to people about something that you don't have a language to fully describe. And so that's what he often does. He looks up and he tries as best he can to describe it. Like I said last week, to a Stone Age tribe, you come to him and you say, this really wonderful gift, electricity, is going to have it in your village someday and I just want to talk to you about it and it's going to be fire going across bamboo and it will actually empower. And you're going, what? That's the difficulty of speaking of heaven, but we do know this about heaven. All that is that God created, he will make new. Like he will make new you and your body. That's what Isaiah records. Listen to Isaiah. It's really interesting. At the very end of his recorded book, in chapter 66, verse 17, and chapter chapter 65, verse 17, and 66, verse 22, Isaiah is told by God, see, I will create, look at a new heaven and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Sounds a little bit like Revelation 21.1, right? And then he says in, in chapter 66, right near the end, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and the descendants, those who are his, will endure. Paul seems to indicate this as well. Paul has the kind of view and understanding. It's not this platonic out there somewhere we're going to go and all this gets destroyed. And so what does it matter what we do here on this earth right now? Paul has this very interesting idea of creation groaning in Romans chapter 8. 
Listen to these words. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That's the resurrection of the dead. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So I don't know if you thought of it that way before. I don't know if you ever understood or pictured what I think the Bible has to say what Jesus taught and what we see in the prophets and we see in the apostles. I find it interesting. I think if I asked our creation right now, if I went out and and creation could speak to me and I said to them, um, how about it if, um, if heaven could come today? What do you think they'd say? Please, do it. No more pollution, no more ozone depletion, no more brown ties, no more careless deforestation. On and on creation could go. Because creation says the ones that were created to tend us didn't do such a good job. But someday, you will. Heaven a place is where all that is will be made new. But it's also a place where all that is is made right. And I touched upon this as we kind of began. I gave you a picture from a positive side as best I could. But really what is interesting is in Revelation 21, and often what you'll find is theologians will call it um, truth via negativa, which means truth through negatives. And so that's what you find in this passage. You kind of go, oh, wow, there's new heaven, new earth. What does that mean? What does it look like? And so the best that John can do is to describe it in, in ways where he negates things. So he begins in, in verse 1, he says, there will be no more sea. And some of you who, how many like the ocean and sea? Don't get worried, okay? It's not what he's talking about. Remember, I, I, he, you got to get into the imagery. He's speaking to people in that day. In the ancient time, the sea was not a good place. They were very much afraid of it. It was chaotic. It went on forever. And you, you, people went away and you never saw them again. And storms would come from that and you didn't even know when they were going to come. The Old Testament symbolism of the sea represented a chaotic, restless, unending evil. Daniel had visions and from it the rampaging beast would come and trample the nations. It came out of the sea. You ever look at the sea and they say it broils and boils and and that's the picture that he says there will be no more sea. The point is this, when all things are made new, there will be one reality gone forever. Evil in all its forms will be utterly eradicated. There'll be no more sea. Verse 4, if you go on, he says there's no more sorrow. I was um, going over this message this morning, and I was, um, and again now, I just moved as I read this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
all suffering and separation will be ended because there will be nothing any longer to cause any of that. You will never have anything to cry about. No more sin, verse 8 and verse 27. There will be no more sin because those who choose to continue to sin will not be allowed in. All who remain unrepentant and persistently wicked will be excluded. He gives this picture here, the cowardly. And and he considers the coward the person who won't get real with themselves and and is constantly blaming and, and constantly finding fault with something else but can't look at themselves. The cowardly, the unbelieving the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That's what I spoke about last week. Hell is the best that God can do for a person who says, I don't want you. I don't want the kind of life that you want me to live. Verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 23 through 25, also found in chapter 22, verse 5, no more darkness. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to light it, for the glory of God and the Lamb will illuminate it. Its light will be the light of the nations of the earth and the rulers of the world will come and bring their glory to it and its gates never close. They stay open all day long. There is no night. There'll be no more darkness and night in that symbolic sense that means that there's no fear of locking up your house at night, closing the gates due to theft. There's no need for the night light due to some monster under your bed. There's no need of a flashlight lest you stumble and fall. The light of God's presence will dispel the darkest evils. And ultimately, it'll be a place where God dwells with us. His perfect will and his incredible glory and his full goodness and his love. His love filling every space and every place. I read Genesis 22. I don't have time to go into that right now. But it's a garden city. There's a spectacular natural beauty but there's as the garden, but there's this incredible sense of the city where you see human ingenuity. Old Testament Christopher, uh, scholar Christopher Wright says, On, unlike the first cities distorted by sin, these cities will reveal the incredible human capacity for cooperation, coordination, creativity, and culture. If you think about cities, he says, they require extraordinary feats of organization, problem-solving, imagination, and ingenuity. Ants can produce an anthill. Bees can produce a hive. And these we see as hugely cooperative enterprises. We're kind of going, whoa, right? You look at them? But only humans can build cities. You will not be bored. You'll be doing what you were created to do for eternity. Dallas Ward says it this way, and this is a mouthful, but try and stick with it for a second. Your destiny is to be absorbed in a tremendously creative team effort under unimaginably splendid leadership on an unconceivably vast scale with an ever-increasing cycles of productivity and enjoyment. And that is what I has not seen and here has not heard that lies before us in the prophetic vision of heaven. 
Should I read that again? Isn't that cool? Your destiny is to be absorbed, to be just fully engaged in the tremendously creative team effort under unimaginably splendid leadership on an unconceivably vast scale with ever-increasing cycles of productivity and enjoyment. And that is what our eyes haven't seen and our ears haven't heard with regard to the prophetic vision that lies before us. You will not be bored. Heaven is primarily life with God. So if you want to go to heaven then you have to want to be with God. Like Dallas Lord also says this. He said some really cool things. In heaven, it will be very hard to avoid God. Because that's where God dwells. And if you don't want God now, if you're not taking time to get to know him now, if you don't ultimately want to authentically follow him now, if you're not genuinely in obeying his commands as best you can now, do you really want heaven? And then last... Heaven is a place where all that is is made for you. God created this world for his glory, but he created it for us to enjoy, to tend, and to, to continually absorb ourselves and to see all that God has created within us be expressed all around us. And, and that's going to happen in the new heaven and new earth. It's made for you. It's where your heart longs for, it's your home. It's where you will flourish because it's where the best of who you are is celebrated and developed. Isn't home a great concept? Home is the place you can be yourself, right? You can be free to be you. Think about it. When you're home, you can walk around in your underwear, right? The dog can kiss you on the lips. You can have a Coke for breakfast. And nobody gets to criticize you because you're home. Home is a place where you're safe. When you're home, you're protected. Did you know this? That even the police cannot enter your home unless they have permission. It's your space. Home is the place where you belong. It's where you fit. It's where you're valued. It's what you, it's really what you miss when you're away from it, right? In fact, we have this, um, strange kind of disease when you're away too long from it called Home sickness. You can actually stay at the Four Seasons or Ritz-Carlton and still miss your little place called home with your bed and your pillow where you belong. Here's the truth of God's word. If there is a God, we have hope for an eternal home. If there is not a God, we are a homeless race. And I don't have time to go through all... I'll just read you this little thing I wrote. Many atheistic scientists will tell you that once people believed they were chosen by God, made in his image, keeping his word in a creation wrought by his love for us. But now such wishful, errant thinking is proven wrong through scientific discovery. Once we believed we were the center of the universe, now we know better. We find ourselves on a tiny planet on the edge of a humdrum galaxy among billions like it. We are but accidents of some uncaused evolutionary process. The universe is indifferent. We live here for a time, but there is no ultimate home. Even Stephen Hawking would tell you that. A few months ago, I went into Lund's and I picked up this little booklet titled The Mystery of History and I was so amazed after I kept reading through these things and you'd see these incredible things like Pyramid, Stone Edge, all these different things. And as you read through each one of them, so many of them, they say, we believe this was created as a way to picture the afterlife. 
some hope of getting in touch with that. And I thought, isn't that interesting? It's as if in some way or somehow there's this universal idea, this wish, this hope, this longing for an eternal home. It's as if eternity were somewhat wired in our hearts. And Solomon says so in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has also set eternity in the hearts of people. My uh, uh, John Orperg, who says something I think is really interesting about this, he goes, one of the most amazing aspects of nature is how God has placed in animals a kind of homing instinct of incredible accuracy. Homing pigeons can find their way from places They've never been on the planet so accurately that they were used by the ancient Romans and by Genghis Khan to be able to get back or to send things back. Dung beetles navigate home by the Milky Way. Salmon leave the ocean and travel to an exact spot on the exact river where they were born, and they do all this navigation by magnetic waves. A mommy emperor penguin will let her dad care for her little penguins for four months, which is a big deal right there, right? (laughs) While she goes off to feed her face. What are the odds that she will find her way back to the exact spot with the exact penguin? But she does. A gray whale will travel all the way to a little lagoon off um, Cabo San Lucas to give birth and care for her family. And you think about this. What are the odds that she would navigate 12,000 miles to her exact home in Alaska? But she does. Now think about this one. My wife, Grace, was born in the frozen tundra of Thief River Falls, Minnesota. She moved away at age 18. We got married about age 25. Think about what are the odds that someday when we retire, we will move back to Thief River Falls? None at all. (laughs) Zippo. That homing instinct isn't working. Everyone has a hunger for home. And that home is God himself who makes his heart your home. So that someday... You will be in a place, a new heaven and a new earth that is not going to be boring. It's not going to be some thing where you get a harp when you come in. But will be a place that is this without all the junk forever. And we have no idea what God has planned for us. Okay, I... I want you to think about this because I'm going to come back in just a minute and I'm going to just conclude this with just a couple more things because I want you to think about this. If I, I just feel so much in a pastoral moment and role right now, if you have never opened your heart and got honest and done the courageous thing that said, hey, I need you, God. I look at my heart. I look at the things that I have done and, and they, they don't necessarily create better relationships a better life. And I'm going to admit that and I'm going to repent and I'm going to open my heart to you because I want to be with you forever. And many of you might have done this in your past. There's some of you that God might be saying you haven't. It's time to open your heart and invite him into your heart so you can be at home with him so you'll be home with him forever.